The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Haley Hubbard, a mom to three kids and wife to a touring artist and songwriter. And I'm Jessica Diamond, a registered dietitian nutritionist with a master's in public health. And this is Meaningful Living. Every week, we're breaking down the overwhelming amount of parenting, nutrition, and lifestyle information into credible knowledge and simple tools. The Cliff Notes Guide to Feeling Confident in Your Everyday Choices. It takes a village. We're so excited to share ours with you. In today's episode, we get to talk to Dr. Harvey Karp, who is the infant and baby sleep guru. We talk about tricks to actually get your baby to sleep. We discuss toddlers and how to manage feelings and the well-intended things that we may do that might be impacting our baby's sleep. Babies, of course, don't come with an owner's manual, and there's nothing more overwhelming than a crying newborn that's overly tired and we can't get to sleep. Dr. Harvey Karp is truly the newborn sleep master. He's a pediatrician, he's an author, and the creator of the SNOO and CEO of The Happiest Baby. He has so many years of experience and success when it comes to baby sleep that parents across the world have read his books and used his techniques to calm their baby. If you haven't seen a video of Dr. Karp calming a fussy baby, you have to YouTube it because it's pretty magical. All right, let's get started. Let's do it. Dr. Karp, it is so nice to meet you. I have been a fan of yours for so long. I've been recommending you to parents for years. I've used your principles for my son Bryce as well, and they have all worked. So we're just so excited to have you on the podcast today to share all of your sleep tips and all of this knowledge that you have that is so practical and so easy. Thank you so much, Jessica. Great to meet you too, Helen. Great to meet you. Thanks for being here. You bet. So let's just dive right in. Today's episode, we're going to really talk all about calming down your newborn and getting them to actually sleep. You know, calming a fussy baby and getting them to sleep is something every parent struggles with. And we just love your simple method that actually works. Can you share that simple method with us? Can you talk about the five S's and what that means and how someone can calm a fussy baby? Yeah, of course. So it turns out we kind of made a mistake a few years back thinking that when a baby is born, they're ready for the world but they're really not. The only reason we give birth after nine months is because their heads are so big. If we didn't give birth (laughs) after nine months, they're not getting out. They really should stay in another three months. Now, I've never been able to persuade anyone to try that. It's just a theory. But, but, you know, when you have a baby, after four months or so, they're smiling, they're cooing, they're interacting, they're really ready to be in the world. A newborn is just a smushy little E.T. alien, you know, that needs to be held and rocked and shushed and fed every second of the day, which is exactly what they were getting inside the womb. So as a young doctor, I was kind of frustrated by our lack of understanding about babies. And I would tell parents, some babies just cry for two or three hours. We call it colic. No one knows really what causes it. It's this mystery, you know, this mysterious problem. And it didn't make any sense. I mean, how can you put a man on the moon right? You could talk to Bangalore, India in four seconds, but you can't figure out why babies cry. It didn't make any sense. And some cultures are much better able to meet their baby's needs than we were in our culture. And uh, so I kind of studied everything I could. And I practiced with, with my patients for many, many years and came to realize that this is the aha moment, the really curious thing. Babies have over 70 reflexes they're born with. And that means it's kind of like the built-in software for your computer. You know, you just press the button, turn it on, and it works. You don't have to load up all that software. And babies are born with software as well. Like you don't teach a baby how to cry 
how to suck, how to swallow, how to blink. All of those things are built in. Some things aren't built in. Smiling, laughing, talking. Those are things that are, will be software that you have to add on later on. And so what I came to realize is babies were also born, not just with the cry ability, but with an off switch for crying. And you activated that switch called the calming reflex by doing five things that imitate the baby's experience in the womb called the five S's. So that's swaddling, the side or stomach position, shushing or white noise, swinging or rhythmic motion, and sucking. And pretty much every parent, every grandparent, everybody who's ever held a baby does those things automatically, right? When you hold a child, you usually just, your body is swaying, you're kind of rocking, you're shushing them. But it turns out that the way you do it, the very specifics of how you do it make all the difference. Like if you hit someone's knee and you hit and you're off by three inches, ain't going to work. There's a specificity to it. And that's really kind of why I I wrote a book and made a video called The Happiest Baby on the Block. And actually, I don't even recommend the book, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, it's a great book. It's interesting. It's got anthropology. But you really learn it by watching the video, a 30-minute video that really kind of teaches, teaches the techniques. That video is is truly magical. I really think it just unlocks like what you were saying, which is this is a time that we intuitively do some of it, but doing it in the order that you talked about and actually following those five S's has been a game changer for parents I've worked with and for me myself. And so I, I just, I think it's brilliant. Thanks. Here's a weird thing. We are the first generation in the history of humanity that's taking care of babies without any training. I mean, there are people having babies who have never touched a baby in their lives before they have their own baby. That never happened in the history of humanity. They hadn't happened for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And on top of it, they don't have extended family help. And they just assume they've seen babies. I can do this. How hard can it be? It's kind of like I've been in jets. How hard can it be to fly one? You know, well, you could, but you just, you do need a little training, you know, and babies, (laughs) you know, you need a little, you need a little training. And so you know how they always say, why don't they come? They didn't don't come with instructions and happiest baby is meant to be their instructions. However, it doesn't stop there. I mean, it's not just swaddle a baby. How do you swaddle a baby? How do you do it correctly? How do you do it safely? What type of sound do you use? What type of sound doesn't work? What type of motion do you use? Exactly what part of the body has to move and jiggle to be able to get the effect? And then what do you do all night long? Because you can be great at calming babies during the day. It doesn't help you between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. And in fact, that's why we created Snoo, which is this automatic, we call it a baby bed, but it really isn't a baby bed. It's really your older sister who moved in and said, I'm going to hold and rock and shush this baby all night. If the baby's upset, I'm going to rock and shush more because it's a responsive bed. And then if it doesn't calm the baby after a couple of minutes, it means the baby's hungry and you just get the baby. But we can add an hour to the baby's sleep just the way anyone can Anyway, you don't have to buy a snoo to add a couple of hours to your baby's sleep. Just drive them around in the car all night and you can do the same thing. But with snoo, you can do it while you're in bed. It's literally a magic bassinet. <laughs> I don't know if anyone, if you guys that are listening have tried one, but it is magical. We got ours too late in the game for our kids, but the times that we did use it, it was fantastic. Now, I have a question for you because all of this is so interesting because obviously I'm so in this phase. Like Mm -hmm. our six month old is now, I mean, now he's sleeping great, but we've just been through all the phases and the transitions. But I'm asking you this question because I was once this parent 
that said, my baby doesn't like to be swaddled. First, my first child, I said this with, what would you advise someone or say to a parent that says, my baby doesn't like to be swaddled? Well, I would say that a couple of things. Of course, every baby is different. However, 99.9% of cultures around the world have swaddled their babies for thousands of years. And those mothers know something. Now, I'm not saying every single baby loves to be swaddled, but the big mistake is thinking that your baby gets a vote. With rights come responsibilities. And babies just aren't responsible to not whack themselves in the nose. You know, they want to suck their fingers doesn't mean that they have the coordination in the beginning to do that. And so here's the mistake that people make. In the womb, babies are packaged up like a little tiny pretzel, right? They're all bundled up into a little ball and their arms are flexed and their hands are by the mouth. And so when they're born, they're tight, their muscles are tight. And when they cry, their arms go up. And when they struggle against you, their arms go up and you think, hmm, my baby's putting their arms up. It means they don't like it when I'm trying, I'm trying to straighten this arm, but my baby doesn't want it. Well, it's not that your baby doesn't want it. It's just an automatic reaction of their musculature. And after several weeks, the muscles relax and their arms start to be more stretched out and things like that. So it it can feel wrong when you're wrapping a baby because they're fighting you at it. But once you wrap them correctly and then you do the other S's, they melt and they become so at ease and then they relax into the swaddling and then the arms down swaddling is perfect for them because they'll end up sleeping longer. I know people say, but their hands have to be out to self-soothe. Nonsense. During the night, if their hands are out, they're going to startle. They're going to whack themselves in the face. Have the hands out all day long so they can practice hand-to-mouth behaviors. But when they're sleeping, they need to be sleeping and and the arms in. So those are the things I would say to someone who says, my baby doesn't like swaddling. It's going to keep them safer. It's going to help them sleep better. And as a parent, sometimes you have to say, sweetheart, I know what's best for you. And that's the case with with swaddling. I also love that swaddle for transitional phases when it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, now we're starting to transition out of the swaddle. I love that you can take the arms out or just one arm out at a time. Yeah, for that transition. The other thing that I think is just that I just want to hone in on that you said is that it's a natural reflex for babies to try to pull their arms out and try to pull those those arms up. And so what we may see as fighting or we may see as them wanting to get out of the swaddle, it's actually just a reflex that's happening. And then once they're in that swaddled and properly swaddled, they then really calm down. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And listen, if you don't swaddle them in a blanket, you swaddle them with your arms. You don't just let a child flail around, right? <laughs> You'll hold those arms in a, in a sweet little cuddle. And so it's this, it's that same process. I have obviously had three kids very close back to back. And with the first one, I went like a couple months with only swaddling when I was like, oh, this would be a cute picture. But other than that, like we used the docatot or something like that a lot of times for her little naps because I was like... and please don't kill me. And everyone listening to this, do not listen or do what I'm what I am saying right now. But I'm just now telling you this so you can learn from my mistake that we were having Olivia nap in the docketot. And I was like, oh yeah, she doesn't need to be swaddled. Like her little arms stay down and she stays all snug in the docketot and she naps so well. Well, then we had a second baby the next year and it made me really think about my kids' sleeping habits and what I was implementing in their life. But 
I really wanted to ask you your advice on Docatots because people are such a huge fan of those loungers and should they be used? Are they safe? And if people use them, how should they use them? Well, there are a lot of things parents have used out of their desperation. Like I got to have help. I got to get some sleep. Um, there were things called rock and plays or these little rocking chairs that right. maybe slept in and they were used for years and years until they were all taken off the market a couple of years ago. And if you look at the Docatod website, they'll tell you, this is not meant for sleeping babies. Mm -hmm. This is if you want to put the baby down when you're in the kitchen and you just want a safe place to put the baby down. But they've for years advertised it as a place for babies to sleep that parents have gotten very confused by that. But it is not a safe place for babies to sleep. It's not recommended that even they don't recommend that babies sleep in a docketot. Yeah, it's really an infant lounger. I think we, you know, we need a place where if your kid's on the couch or somewhere around you, just to set them down so that they're in a safe place to lounge. But that's such a good point that it's not a safe place for them to sleep. Yeah, and people put them inside their bassinet and or in, even in a snoodle or in their beds. It is not a safe place. But it's a confusing thing for parents, right? Because you read all sorts of things Very. on the internet, right? So there are a lot of these things parents are taught and it all makes sense, except it's wrong and dangerous if you kind of think through it all the way. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you talked about that because it's one of those issues, like it makes me heart sick even just talking about the thought of that happening to a child, but but it's something that does need to be talked about and we need to hear it as parents because like you said, we go to those desperate measures in desperate times and we're like, oh, let me just do it this once. Oh, let me just let her fall asleep in the mm -hmm. the swing or whatever. And and then it it's yeah. devastating. Yeah. Or it happens accidentally. You're so tired. Yeah. This happens. And so you no know, one can prevent this 100% of the time. And I tell you something, we used to recommend babies only sleep on the stomach. As a doctor, I told them, and then one day I had to say, you know what I told you yesterday? That's completely wrong. Uh, don't listen to what I said yesterday. Listen to what I say today. Babies should only sleep on the back. So we do learn and we try to get smarter and better over time. And none of us are here to be, you know, wagging a finger and, and judging people. We're just trying to give good information and helping people figure out how to, how to do it in the best and the safest way. So we're now in 100 hospitals across the U.S. that are using snooze for premature babies and helping moms who just had their babies and things like that. So we're super excited. at, And now we have, actually, anyone can get a free snoo. Announcement, anyone can get a free snoo. They just what? have their employer contact us and we can make an arrangement with the employer to provide snoo as a benefit for their employees. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So I kind of want to touch back on just like the five S's in a row. So you said swaddling is number one, mm -hmm. putting them on their side. So holding them kind of like a football on the side. Side or stomach. That's never for sleep. That's only when they're in your arms and you're calming them. On the, on the back is the only safe position for sleep. One more question while we're on this. Is it okay if they roll over onto their bellies during sleep and if they can roll back over by themselves? It's such a good question. And it's why it's really important for parents, for moms to practice tummy time with their babies. So the babies start learning how to lift their heads and roll themselves back. But it usually takes till around, really around four months for them to be good at rolling back and forth. Um, some kids do it earlier, but on average, I would say around four months. 
And what do you do at six months to transition them out of the snoo? What's that process like? You know, that's probably our number one question. People go, well, then they're addicted to rocking and shushing and you can never get them out of it. And actually that's completely the opposite. It's a piece of cake to wean most kids out of snoo. Why is that? It's because by their brains have doubled in size from birth. They're much better able at regulating their own sleep. So for example, you give a new baby milk, right? Milk to eat, breast milk, formula milk, whatever. You give milk, 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 day after day, week after week, month after month. Do you ever worry that, oh my God, I've only given milk. Maybe the baby's never going to eat solid food the rest of their lives. It's not going to happen. You just had to wait for them to get mature enough to be able to, you know, to do that. And it's the same thing with sleep. Once a baby gets to be six months or so, they're good at sleeping. They regulate their own sleep. They're able to stay in a sleep cycle longer. And so the tough time is those first three, four, five months when they don't know how to do that. And so when they wake up in the middle of the night, snoo is still rocking and shushing them. How crazy is it that you rock and shush a baby 24 seven when the baby is inside of you and then they're born and you say, tough love, baby, you're on your own all night long in a dark, quiet room, flat on, they've never been on their back, flat on the back, no sound, no motion. I mean, listen, you could sleep on a cement floor, right? I mean, you wouldn't sleep well, but if I took away your bed, your pillow, your comforter, your duvet, your whatever, you could manage it, but you're not going to sleep well. Same thing with babies. You take everything away that they're used to, they'll sleep, but they won't sleep well. Then you get a cold and a growth spurt and teething and all these things that you thought your baby was sleeping well. And then at two months, it all falls like apart, like a house of cards. And you go, why didn't anyone tell me this? Well, it's just the way it works. Babies don't sleep better and better and better. It's a roller coaster. They get better and then worse and better and then worse. And even at four or five months, it can all fall apart, what they call the four-month sleep regression. And so when you fall asleep in, a, in an airplane, and then you wake up in the middle of the flight and your eyes roll around and then you hear that you're still on the flight and your eyes close and you fall back asleep. That's what happens to babies in snoo. And so by the time they get to be six months, they don't need the motion anymore. They still need the sound. And so there's a setting called the weaning setting on the app that gives them sound, but no motion. But if they cry, the motion comes back again. And usually by six months, they're able to sleep without waking up. They don't cry. And after three or four nights of that, you go, oh, my baby's doing fine. They don't need the motion anymore. And then you transfer them out and you just continue using white noise. I have so many questions. Do you want to go first with noise machines or I have more snoo questions? You ask the snoo questions. I'm so interested. So one, you just touched on something. So at six months, you transition them out. How long do you, would you recommend keeping them in the bedroom in the snoo? Or do you move the snoo into their bedroom at a certain age? What would you recommend for that? So usually you keep the baby in the room with you for the first six months. That's what most pediatricians recommend, right, right by your bed. And six months is not a magic number. Some kids are ready to wean a couple of weeks earlier. Some kids need to need snoo a couple of weeks longer. You put them on the weaning setting and they start waking up again. And you go, well, she's not ready yet. Or you try weaning an arm out at four or five months and they start waking up more and you go, oh, she's not ready yet. Babies, you know, mature at their own pace. And so you kind of have to play the cards you're dealt. But on average, right around six months there, I would say they're, they're ready to be out. But when it comes to white noise, it turns out that there are two types of white noise. 
and they have completely opposite effects on your brain. There's high pitch white noise and low pitch white noise. High pitch white noise, shh, screams, beepers, alarms, excellent for getting your attention, lousy for sleep. Low pitch rumbly white noise, great for sleep, terrible for getting your attention. Mm, not going to get your attention. So with babies, and what we did with Snoo is we have we have different types and different intensities of white noise. There's white noise that's helpful for sleep, and then the more the baby is fussing, the sound gets louder and more high pitched because that's what you need to do to calm a crying baby. And so it's important when parents pick white noise that they pick white noise that they can sleep with also. And the, and the biggest thing you have to pay attention to is not to have it too high pitched, which can be kind of irritating and jarring to the nerves. White noise has been a game changer and Bryce still sleeps with white noise now. Um, what's funny is I even enjoy white noise. I never even realized until I had kids how enjoyable it is to sleep with just a little bit of white noise. Something that really helped me with Bryce was when I would swaddle him if he wasn't in a snoo and I would swaddle him and I was trying to shush him. I would actually get one of those just like small little noise machines or shushers and I could kind of place it on his swaddle and just rock him up and down or sway him side to side. And it was so nice because then you didn't have to make the white noise with your mouth. So I love that you said download, you know, it's so simple, download something on your phone or get a white noise machine so that you're not trying to do it yourself because that's just energy that we can outsource to something else. Yeah, you get dizzy shushing someone. It's <laughs> <laughs> hard. Oh, I love earlier how you were saying that babies don't come with an owner's manual. And in the beginning, especially, it's just hard to tell if your baby's tired and how, how your baby's tired. And I even remember this with first, second, and third. Our first baby, I had no idea what the signals were mm-hmm. for how to tell she was tired. And now I look at my babies and I'm, or my six month old, and I'm like, oh, you are tired. And now we have him on the schedule. I see his like little red eyes. And, but can you share some of those signs of like how, you know, your baby is tired? Like, how do I know that my baby's not just fussy because they have gas or a dirty diaper? Like, what are those signs? Well, number one, you learn these things as you go. I mean, again, you're supposed to have taken care of 20 babies before you have your own, (laughs) right? Your brothers and sisters and cousins and stuff like that. So so everyone should kind of pat themselves on the back that they're doing such a good job anyway. And so in general, the signs of being tired, once you see the signs that your baby is tired, you've, pro- you've kind of missed the boat a little bit. So the glazed mm-hmm. eyes and the yawns and the droopy eyes and the irritability, all of those things kind of mean that you, you've waited too long and you try to get ahead of the schedule. There's a saying that nothing improves sleep like sleep. And so if you put them down a little bit earlier than you think is the right time. Usually when you have a new baby, that's mean you meaning an hour and a half, kind of two hours max. And then even though they seem to still be awake, but you turn on the white noise, use white noise during the day too. It's not just for nighttime. And you swaddle them up and whatnot. You know, you give them a good feeding and then you you put them down. And so, but the thing about having a rigid schedule is probably a crazy mistake, right? I mean. Having a schedule is fine, you know, but but doing it in a militaristic way and you set the alarm and now you have to be down, it's just not the way our lives are, right? Most of us have got different things that interfere and, and whatnot. But if you're seeing your baby is, is looking really tired, you've probably kind of waited a little bit too long. 
Mm-hmm. Once you go past that like five minute mark of like, oh no, I missed the mark. You just know that it's going to take that much longer to get them to sleep. Or I don't know, I have to like hold them even tighter and just like rock them for a minute. Yeah. And I think just looking for those early cues was it's just such a game changer because like you said, we're just not taught. We don't have the owner's manual. And so, you know, when their eyes, like, you know, when they get a little red underneath their eyes and their eyelid or, you know, in newborns, when they look away from you, I think the natural instinct is for us to like meet their head and then go back and look at them. But that's actually mm-hmm. them trying to just take a sensory break. And so like let them look away from you. And just looking for those cues is so helpful as a as an early parent. That's, that's exactly, a great point. Exactly right. Yeah. What about the witching hour? This is something I've still never understood as a parent. And I want to know more about it because it, literally with all three of our kids, the witching hour would happen. And our kids are on great schedules. We're not militant about it, but you know we're on a really good schedule with them. But when they were little, it would always happen. Mm-hmm. What is it about the witching hour that makes them so fussy? They're bewitched. And how? Uh, and how do you how do you get through it? <laughs> so, imagine you go to Las Vegas, and um, you're in the casino. All the noise, the smoke, the people, everything going on except you're paralyzed on a gurney and all you can do is move your eyes and you're there for an hour and two and three and four and five. And finally you go, get me out of here. I cannot take this anymore. It's just overstimulating. And that's what a baby's life is like in the world. There's colors. Oh my God, look at that. There's a person. They have teeth. They have eyeballs. You know, everything is new to them. And so babies, by the end of the day, have just like, I, I need a break here. I, I, I got I to gotta get out of here. They're overwhelmed. They're overloaded. And so babies get overstimulated with too much activity and they get understimulated, which is just as bad for them, with too little stimulation. And the balancing act for them are these rhythmic stimuli, holding, rocking, going for a walk, carrying them in a carrier breastfeeding them or bottled feeding them or pacifier use, a white noise, all of those things are like putting money in the bank so that when you get to the witching hour, they're more balanced, they're less irritable because you've been kind of anticipating that all day long and kind of giving them little little treats of these rhythmic sensations that are going to help them, you know, by the end of the day. Wow. That was a great analogy. <laughs> it, re- it really was. And I think that's just like something that's not talked about enough is that, you know, I think there's a lot of like, you should read your baby this book and you should be doing this, you know, play gym with them. And there's kind of all of the things of how we should stimulate them, but we don't really talk enough about what overstimulation does or looking for those cues earlier, which then makes everyone's life a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's well, a learning curve, yeah. right? And, but I agree with you. And that's what I try to do in my, in my books, you know, um, to just kind of give people a little bit of, you know, having been a pediatrician for 40 years, you, know, you learn a few things, hopefully. Yeah. Let's, we were just talking about pacifiers. So let's talk about that again. So obviously when your baby is swaddled, their hands, they can't self-soothe their thumb suck during that time. But you know, there's so much opinions and and you hear so much about pacifiers. Should you use pacifiers? Should you not use pacifiers? And should you start them right off the bat, right? Like, should you start them right in the hospital or do you wait a little time to start pacifiers? Can you talk a little bit about pacifier use? What did you guys do? I want to say, well, with our first, (laughs) 
we we did it like in the hospital mm-hmm. with our second. We did it, I think, a few days after, or like a week after we got home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, similar here. I used probably about three or four days once he came home and we were getting into kind of the routine of it and calming him down. And then he would take a pacifier. We had to try a couple before we found one that would not pop right out and that he would suck on. Mm -hmm. Our two boys took like a month to get into the passy. I was like, do I have to force you? And then how did you get them off? Uh, At one, we just take it away like cold turkey. Mm -hmm. Got it. Actually, we pulled their passy our first... Olivia, we were in Africa and our nanny Katie was like, well, she, she's one years old now and it's time to take her passy away. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so she didn't have a passy on the way home from Africa. And it was a 30 hour flight through Dubai all the way home. And I was like, oh, let's just give her the passy. And we didn't, we didn't, she made it, but let me tell you, it was a long flight, but she never wanted to pass you again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what do and you advise? One last question for you guys. Did either of you or your spouses use a pacifier, suck your fingers, or use a teddy bear or a blankie? Oh, yeah. I sucked my thumb till I was five. <laughs> That's, a confession. That's so embarrassing. Maybe I was four, but I remember my parents bribing me. Jessica, did you know this? I didn't know this. I learned something new about you every day, Haley. Uh, my parents had to bribe me and I don't remember what they said they were going to take away. I think they said they were going to take away my little lovey. Mm-hmm. And um, but you had a I lovey like, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, don't take my stuffed animal away. No. So I stopped, but I did for a while, mm-hmm. but my teeth are fine. <laughs> <laughs> so good. With us, we took away the pacifier uh, with Bryce probably around the six-month mark, kind mm-hmm. of in that natural transition from the, mm-hmm. the swaddling and rolling over. But he also had a lovey too, and he still sleeps with his lovey now. And he does suck his thumb. Mm-hmm. So he found his thumb thereafter. Uh-huh. And what about you and your husband? We do not suck our thumbs. We do not. <laughs> we, As little kids. Yeah. As little kids. As a little kid. Did you have a lovey? Did you have a teddy bear? I had a lovey. I loved my lovey. Yeah. Did you bring it to college Did- with you? You know, I actually did bring it to college with me. I'd have a confession. Uh-huh. I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, well, anyway, that. so the re- here's why I'm asking you these questions. Number one, pacifiers are fantastic. They're a very useful tool. Everyone gets all bent out of shape like it's an addiction or something like that. That's nonsense. It tends to run in families, the need for pacifiers. That's something that most people don't know is that usually is a strong hereditary tendency And so I find that kids who are really into it, it's usually one or both of the parents or their siblings who use pacifiers and or fingers and or they had a real attachment to a lovey. And it all tends to run kind of together in terms of nipple confusion. Mm -hmm. For the most part, bottles are much more of a problem than pacifiers. But there are rare kids that I've seen where the pacifier can cause problems as well. Initially. So the goal is first get the breastfeeding going really well, maybe a week or or 10 days or something like that. Then you can introduce the pacifier. And when you introduce the pacifier, the thing that you need to do if you want your child to take it and not spit it out is something called reverse psychology, meaning the child's sucking on the pacifier. And when they're sucking, rather than holding it in, you go to pull it out or knock it out of their mouths. And the more you try to do that, the more the baby's mouth learns to use the muscles to hold it in place. And then after you do that 20, 30, 40 times, they they get really, really good keeping it in their mouths. 
And then six months is usually a pretty good time to wean the pacifier, six, seven months, eight months, because they don't really have a friendship with it quite yet. And then around eight, nine, 10 months, you start with the lovey. And, and that's a really good time when you're not worried that's going to suffocate them or something like that. However, if you take the pacifier out and they start sucking their fingers, go back to the pacifier. Does a thumb count as a finger? Absolutely. Or no? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I have two questions. First of all, Haley, do any of your kids suck their thumbs? No, I, there's been a couple times that Luca's cried and he kind of sticks his thumb in his mouth to soothe him, but they really have it, which is odd because I clearly had, <laughs> I had to, I had to ask with the, with the hereditary <laughs> thing. I don't think Tyler sucked his thumb. But I they mean, love I their lovies. This, so, so the lovies. They love the their lovies, which they get it at one year old, when we take the passy, they get the lovey. And something that you said, I totally agree with you that you should, if you're breastfeeding, you should definitely get that breastfeeding established. But I hear from parents that are still hesitant at like the one month, two month mark after breastfeeding has been established that they're so afraid to give a pacifier. So I completely agree with you. Give it about a week, get it established. And then at a certain point. And then start a bottle. I mean, don't wait more. Once the breastfeeding is going well after a couple of weeks, start a bottle once a day. It's just for getting your child to learn how to take a bottle. Because a lot of women will say, you know, I'll give a bottle when I go back to work. So I'll wait four months or so. And then they try to introduce a bottle and it's hell on wheels. They just, the baby will not take it at that point in time. So you have to anticipate that before you get into the problem. Yeah. Great point. All right. What else do we want to get into? Well, I think toddlers, <laughs> we want to talk about toddlers, <laughs> toddlers. Yes. I want to hear about the happiest toddler because I know we talked about this before, but I want to hear all about it. Okay. So number one, what is a toddler? My definition of a toddler, a toddler means to start walking, but you're falling over. So I would say it begins at around eight months and it goes up to about 63, 75 years of age, something like that, (laughs) because we all become toddlers if we get upset enough. And so the key concept for happiest baby is that babies are born four months too soon. They need a fourth trimester of extra caring and holding. And if you understand that your job is to imitate your uterus for four months with a new baby, then it makes sense why you hold and rock and you shush them so much. With toddlers, the key concept is toddlers are not little children. They are cavemen. They are unfrickin' civilized. <laughs> they, are, they are little Neanderthals who are sweet and lovely, but they will throw things at your head. They'll spit and scratch. They'll pee anywhere they want. They'll paint on the walls. You know, they, and your job as a parent is to civilize this little primitive And you hope by four or five years of age, they say, please and thank you, share their toys, wait in line and do all those things. But they, even if you have a good day when they're two years old and they say, thank you, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean that your job is over and you cannot expect this little child to always be the good little child that they were on that one particular day. And so this idea about them being cavemen is really has two two purposes. One is for you to down your expectations of yourself to think that as a good parent, you're going to have them well-behaved all the time because they're not going to be. Tantrums are perfectly normal and fine and just a part of life. But you, but, but there are things, and we'll talk about this in a second, that you can do to dramatically reduce and shorten tantrums and to dramatically increase cooperation and patience and emotional resilience. 
The other thing is to change your expectations of your child. If your child, you know, pees on the wall or throws something at your head, it doesn't mean they're a devil child. You know, they're, they're just Neanderthals doing what Neanderthals do. And by the way, Neanderthals are not good roommates. You know, <laughs> they don't clean up after themselves. So once you realize that, then it changes what you what you thought you were getting into with, with a child this age. Oh, I love that. That's so true. And it made me think of a story that happened this weekend with our child, our three-year-old. Mm-hmm. She's actually, she's very sweet. And she, I would say she speaks pretty well for her age and she talks quite a bit. And this weekend we had two social interactions with some of our best friends and she looked at them and instead of saying, hi, how are you? Like she normally would, she just looked straight at them like she didn't even know them. And you know that feeling as a parent when you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so Mm -hmm. embarrassed. I was like, all right, where's your manners? Say hello. Nothing. Literally. I mean, I tried everything. She wouldn't. Then this morning, a friend of ours walks in and she goes, hi, Laura, how are you? How is your family doing? She literally said, how's your family doing and how is your weekend? And I'm like, and you couldn't say, hi, how are you to our friends yesterday who are our best friends? So just, yeah, you can't control it. No, no, but but you're it's on the a right work track. in progress you're on every the right day. Track. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Exactly right. Sounds like she's she was she's well on her way to becoming her, an interviewer on on a podcast. <laughs> I, know. I mean, a three year old saying, "How's your family and how's your weekend?" I was like, "Whoa." Well, here's here's an interesting thing that I I was surprised by when I started writing these books. I thought, you know, Happiest Baby has been a pretty successful book and video, and a lot of people use it and stuff like that. And I thought, heck, you know, if they like that, they're definitely going to like the sequel, right? Like Harry Potter. No one just reads the first book of Harry Potter and they don't read the second book. And yet what I came to realize is that when you're having a baby, you want to be the best mother, the best father who ever lived. And you'll buy 10 books about babies. You may not read them. And if you read them, you may not remember them, but you bought them and they're on the shelf. And then you will never buy another book the rest of your kid's life unless there's some specific problem because you're just winging it and who has time to read anyway and blah, blah, blah. But it turns out, and you guys have been through this, those first six months can be difficult, but they're going to be over in six months one way or another. They're going to get better eventually. Between eight months and five years of age, you've built a person. You've built their sense of resilience and emotional confidence and and, and intimacy and communication capabilities and delayed gratification, and you will help oh, them yeah. become the, the type of person that you want them to be. Um, and uh, and it's filled with, it's like the five S's. When people learn the five S's and I said, shush the baby with your mouth near the ear and you go, shh, and people go, are you saying shut up to my baby? No, I'm just imitating the womb sound. It was counterintuitive to do that loud in a, in a loud uh, voice, but it's what works with kids. And so there's a lot of things that are counterintuitive with toddlers. And I'll give you just one example. Many, there are many, many, you know, like 30 specific things that literally can work in a day to help your child be more patient and cooperative and things like that. But, um, but I find one of the, probably the biggest mistake parents make with toddlers, with communicating with toddlers, is the way they communicate when they're upset. Now we've we've gotten smarter over the years, right? I mean, it used to be that when your child was upset, you could womp them one, right? And then we learned, no, don't do that. And we learned, you know, still people wouldn't hit their kids, but they would say things that berate the child. Don't be a baby, 
you know, shut up, this isn't the right place, be a big boy and all that kind of stuff, which was demeaning. And now we don't do that. Now parents are taught to acknowledge feelings. And what does that mean? We think it means to say something like, honey, I know you're upset. I know you wanted that toy. Jackson's playing with it now. You're going to get a turn. Remember we talked about taking blah, 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 blah. That is the way we think that we want to be talked to. But if you understand that a toddler's brain develops in a very different way. So in your brain, you have two halves, right? If you lift off the top of your skull, it looks like a walnut. There's two halves. There's the left half, which is the adult half, and the right half, which is more the toddler half, the emotional half, the things like that. The left half takes a long time to develop patience, cooperation, verbal skill, analytical capabilities, et cetera. The right half works really great, even with little toddlers. They understand recognizing a face, recognizing a place, music, bouncing to the music. A one-year-old can do that. A one-year-old can read your face. A nine-month-old can read your face. If you're laughing, they'll laugh. If you're sad, they'll look sad. They get that in a second but they're not gonna understand the word sad or the word happy for another year, year and a half. So it turns out toddlers are really, really good at nonverbal communication. And that means we have to invest what we're saying with nonverbal communication, with tone of voice, with gestures. And we do it automatically, it's called mother ease. It's repetition, short phrases, and mirroring a third of their emotion. It's what I call toddler ease, short phrases, repetition, mirroring a third of their emotion. And so we do that on a normal day. We even do it when they're very happy, right? Yay, you did it, you did it. Wow, you did a good job. You tried and tried and you did blah, blah, blah. Repetition, short phrases, and mirroring a third of their emotion. Then when they get upset, when they're unhappy, when they're frightened, when they're frustrated, we turn into these mini psychiatrists and take all of our emotion away. Honey, I know you didn't like that. I know you don't want to sleep, be in the, in the car seat, but it's very important to be in the car seat, honey, because we can get into a car accident and there are fatalities on the highway and you need to be safe and blah, blah, blah. It's like, do you don't understand how much I don't want to be in a car seat? Because I don't think you got it from the way you said it to me, right? Like if you're, if you're crying and your best friend says to you, that's very upsetting. I can see why you are so sad. I would be sad as, I mean, right? You feel like, this is, this is monstrous, right? This person is saying words, but they don't understand at all how I'm feeling. Right. So what do you do with a little kid? You do the same technique you do with them when they're very happy. You are mad. You're mad. You're, your face, and it obviously depends on the age of the child, but like for a three-year-old, you're not even, you don't want to look at me right now. You just are not happy and your face is sad and you don't even like me right now. You say, I want that toy and I'm mad, mom, because you wouldn't get something like that five, six, seven, eight times, which feels like this is, this doesn't feel right. This is like I'm being an actor or something like that. But the truth is, if you're talking to your friend who's very sad, you'll say, I am, I am so sorry. I am so, so sorry. I can't even imagine what it must be like. I am so very sorry, please. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even know what to say, but I just want you to know I'm feeling incredibly sorry for what you must be going through right now. That repetition feels normal, and it is normal. When you're talking to someone who's upset, the words you say do not matter as much as the way you say the words. And doing this little dance called toddlerese and something called the fast food rule, which is another little toddler technique, becomes incredibly important in validating your child's feelings, because ultimately 
your child needs to learn something that's very important. I care about your feelings. I'm not going to give in to you every time you want something. So it's not like you're going to get it. I'm going to set a limit, but I deeply care and I understand how you feel. And I will walk down the path with you, even if I can't give you the thing you want. I'm there acknowledging, respecting your feelings. Yeah. Something you said that is just so fascinating is that you're mirroring how they feel, but you're not then discounting the feeling, right? So previously we may have said like, you know, why are you mad right now? You shouldn't be mad. And we would react. But now you're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, validate their feelings, but give, give the appropriate emotion along with that. Exactly right. But I used to say, actually, I had to rewrite something in my book because I said, reflect their feelings or mirror their feelings. People think that means 100%, like whatever their level of feeling is, that's your level of feeling. No, you're like a third, like 30% of their level of emotions, because otherwise you're drawing attention to yourself. Like if your friend goes, I am so sad. And you go, you're sad. Oh my God, I see how sad you are. You must feel terrible. It's so, you know, I mean, then you're drawing all the attention to yourself. So it's important. Wow. This, this 30% rule is pretty much the normal balance for, for an upset child, even an upset adult, right? With your teenager, you know, if they're really upset, they want the car keys, but you say, no, you might go, listen, you want, I totally, you want the car keys. You're mad at me because you want to go to Stephanie's house and you were looking forward to that. Now I'm not giving you the car keys and you're mad because, you know, I told you, you had to clean up your room. It's the only thing I asked. And I said, if you don't clean up your room, you can't go to Stephanie's house. But I totally get why you're upset with me. I just can't do it because we had a deal and, and you didn't live up to your end of the deal. But I, I understand how, how upset you are. Right. That's totally validating. I mean, even just hearing that, even if I am so mad that you told me I couldn't have the car keys, you at least validated me. Mm-hmm. And that like gives me peace of mind, right? And this is where moms all the time diss their, their spouses saying, you know, I don't solve it for me. I'm not asking you to solve the problem. I just want to tell you how my day was. You don't have to tell me what I need to do now. I just wanted to unburden myself. And so, so often with our little kids, they have a problem. And then we say, here's what you should do, or do this, or you shouldn't feel that way, or that kind of thing. And it's actually fine to give them solutions, but it's not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is you really validate their feelings in a way that feels validating to them, which is toddlerese. And then, you know, a few minutes later, if they're still pouty and they're having a hard time, you could say, hmm, would you like some help with that? Or, you know, I have an idea, you know, maybe we could do this and then you could try to help them learn how to solve the problem on their own. Haley and I always joke that everything that we talk about on here works for our kids, but also can work for your partner. But it is so true. Like if we if we actually treat our kids in the way that we would want to be treated or in our relationships, it's really helpful. It, it super is. And, and you should know that no one does this right. I can't tell you the number of times my wife or my daughter says to me, you didn't listen to me well. <laughs> you know, that, that I, I you're not following your own rules. Listen, it's hard to do it when a little person or a big person is screaming at you. You know, so none of us do it perfectly, which is fine also, because you can come back five minutes later and say, you know what, I maybe I didn't listen to you well enough. You know, I I realized how upset you were. And that teaches another great lesson, which is people can come back and we can apologize and we can try and do a better job. Oh, yeah. We talk about that all the time, too. The repair. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's all about that repair. And that's the most important part. And it's even great to almost show that you messed up and be able to admit that. 
Absolutely right. It's all being able to teach. And that's how kids learn. They don't learn what you say. They learn what you do. Oh, yes, they do. They copy everything you do. Uh, I feel like we could talk forever. You are so fascinating to listen to. And I'm, I've already learned so much throughout this episode. We have a couple more questions for you. One is just something that we ask all of our guests. It's what made you feel full this week? What made me feel? Well, um, I guess that um, uh, uh, our daughter is 37 and she sent the cake to our house because inside <laughs> the cake was the reveal of the gender of her baby. <laughs> Oh, and, oh uh, congratulations. Thank you. So we got to cut the cake open and we did a FaceTime together and we were FaceTiming each other's reaction on the video and <gasps> stuff like that. What's the gender? So that made me feel really cool. It's a girl. Aww, that's so yeah. exciting. Wow. What a cool, re- like a reveal. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, you know, a pink um, icing on the inside of the cake. Oh, congrats. Yeah. That's exciting. That's really yeah. exciting. Well, <laughs> Like I said, you've been so interesting and knowledgeable and I've learned so much and I love your analogies, by the way, everything you just, I could visualize everything that you were explaining. And I love that because I'm such a visual person. So thank you for your time today. And, um, and there's tons more, I should just say there's tons more information all for free on our website, which is happiestbaby.com. We have millions of people come in and using, we've got blogs and and information and advice and anyone can come and get information about babies, about sleep, about toddlers. It's uh, all all there waiting. Oh, yes. Thank you. So is that where people can find you? Yeah. I tried to get happiestbaby.com, C-A-L-M, but... uh, (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. They didn't allow that. So (laughs) happiestbaby.com. Uh, well, thank you so much. And um, I hope we get to talk to you again soon. This has been really fun. Has been yeah, so fun. I would love to do it. You guys are terrific. Such a, such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you found something meaningful from this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We want to hear from you. Your thoughts, experiences, and anything you want us to cover. Tune in every Monday for a new episode of Meaningful Living. And if you're looking for more ways to live a meaningful life, follow us on Instagram at Meaningful Living and visit our website, MeaningfulLiving.com. Can't wait to see you next week. 